0: Um, we all know and we've heard about how important it is as human beings to make a good first impression, right? So when we first meet somebody, we tend to size them up, don't we? And, and we intuitively do this, even in just the first few seconds of meeting somebody. You, you know, you ask yourself maybe, is this a kind person? Is this a polite person? Is this an intelligent person? Is this a person that, that looks like me and maybe shares some of the experiences I have? Is this an interesting person? Is this an arrogant person? Is this a humble person? We, we all do that without even thinking. It's just kind of built into or hardwired into our system. And we size people up. And so even we're told as, as people to make, make sure you make a good impression, especially when you're going into a job interview or you're meeting the in-laws for the first time or something like that. You want to make a good impression impression. Let me ask you this question. What was your first impression of Jesus? What was your first impression of Jesus? Now, I know for many of you, that is a question that is maybe 60 years in the past. Right? The first time you experienced Jesus or heard of Jesus or met Jesus or, or, or knew Jesus for the first time was a long, long time ago. And so even to ask that question, you're like, man, we're so far beyond first impressions that I can't even remember what my first impression was. So, so I want, what I want you to do now is think, okay, what is my current impression of Jesus? How do I see him? How do I understand him? What is he like as a person who is Jesus to me? And as we read again in the book of Matthew, we're in chapter 3 of Matthew, which is just the very beginning. And one of the things that Matthew was trying to do in the first chapters of this gospel is to give us a first impression of Jesus, to show us who Jesus is. And I think... Many of us would come and if we were to really kind of set aside all the impressions that we have, all the things that we think and believe about Jesus and set those aside and look at this as a new first impression of who Jesus is, I think we'd actually be shocked. I think we would actually perhaps see some things that weren't there. So that's what I'm going to encourage you to do as we come into this book of Matthew and look at this gospel, which many of us have read dozens, if not hundreds of times. Come back to it and say, what is the impression, God, that you want me to see when I look at Jesus? Can I set my decades-old impressions of him aside for the moment and just pay attention to the picture painted here in the Word? Because I think we might actually be shocked and surprised by who he is. Now, I'm trying to connect with my computer back there, and I think it's asleep. Could somebody wake it up? Maybe just clap real loud and me say, wake up, computer. There it is. Hey, hey. Got it. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. All right. So here we come into, into Matthew chapter 3, and we're beginning to get an impression. Now, just FYI, we haven't even met Jesus yet. And we're in Matthew chapter 3. And last week, we didn't meet him, and we met this man named John the Baptist. And here we have John the Baptist again. And so we still aren't going to meet Jesus. We're going to hear about him, but we're not going to meet him. But John the Baptist, as the forerunner and the herald of Jesus, this Messiah, is going to give us a picture of who Jesus is. And here's what he he begins with. Remember, John the Baptist is kind of this wild man, a prophet living out in the wilderness. He's wearing camel's hair and leather around his waist, he's eating locusts and wild honey. And he's preaching repentance and dunking people in the Jordan River. And he says, when he saw many of the Pharisees, this is verse 7, when he saw them and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, the first question we should ask about this is here's, here he is with these crowds out in the, in the wilderness, in the... In the Jordan River, baptizing all these people, and not only are the crowds coming to him, but now these Pharisees and these Sadducees are coming, and he recognizes them, and we kind of ask the question, okay, why were they coming to him? Why were Pharisees and Sadducees making this trek from Jerusalem out to this wild place? Were they they coming to be baptized? Were they they coming because they were interested in in this new teaching or these things that John had to say? Or or were they simply coming out of curiosity, like to see the show? Hey, there's a lot of people going. We should probably go and see what's happening. Were they they coming to be entertained by John? Well, John's Gospel, which is a different John, but um, same name, John's Gospel, who was written by the the disciple of the Apostle John, gives us a little bit of insight into the motivations of these leaders. And in the first chapter of John, we read about these priests and Levites who are sent from Jerusalem by the religious leaders, and they're basically sent to quiz John to find out who is he, why is he baptizing. And here's how John answers the um, leaders in John in John chapter 1. I keep saying John and John. And it's two different Johns. Okay, John the Baptist, John the disciple. In the book of John, John the Baptist says this to them and this echoes Matthew 3 verse 3 and, and Isaiah 40 where John says to them, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then a few verses later he echoes what he says here in Matthew 3:11 by actually telling them about Jesus and even anticipating that Jesus was in the crowd at that very moment while he's preaching. So John chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, he tells them, "I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know." So it's like in the crowd is one standing there and you don't know him. You don't recognize him but he's one of you. He who comes after me John says the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So so these Jewish leaders what they're doing is ultimately coming to John to give answers and and like any good wise man wandering in the wilderness or prophet he doesn't give them a very straight answer, right? He says I'm the one preparing the way for one who's standing among you who's coming, who's greater than me. But they ultimately want to get answers from him. That's why they came. They want to, in a sense, define who he is. We don't know what to do with this guy. Where should we put him in our understanding? Because when you can define something, you can control it. When you can put a... put a box around something and say, this is what it is, this is who it is, then there's no more mystery to it. There's no unknown. There's nothing outside of your control. And to these leaders, John seemed out of control. He seemed like he had this huge influence on all these crowds that were coming to him, and they were outside of, he was outside of their control. And they want to know why. They want to know who. They want to know what. Quite possibly, they want to come and put a stop to him. Or I almost wonder if they came trying to recruit him. Hey, why don't you become one of us? There's great pay, good benefits. You could preach at at the temple. We'll even give you your own little fountain to preach next to, your own little corner of the temple grounds. Somehow they were trying to control what was uncontrollable, but instead of them getting any clear answers, instead of John giving them clear answers, instead what he does is he actually confronts them with three metaphors. He, he calls them names, basically, but he confronts them with these Three metaphors which describe who they are and what they are facing. And the first one we see here in verse 7, where he basically insults them by calling them a brood of vipers. When he saw them, he says, you brood of vipers. Now, this is the same kind of language that Jesus used. When he spoke to the Pharisees, and in particular, he was accused when he was doing miracles. Specifically, he was casting out demons. So he was, he was meeting these people who were demon-oppressed, and he was throwing demons out of them. And the only way that the, that the religious leaders could define him, the only way that they could understand him, was to kind of flip reality on his head and say, he must be doing this because he's in league with Satan. So in other words, the only reason he can cast out demons is, is because he, is, he has a dark power that he's tapping into. He's in league with Satan himself. They were accusing Jesus in one sense of being on Satan's or on the devil's payroll. And in response, Jesus places that very same accusation squarely back on their laps. And he says this, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil, it's like you guys are trying to explain what's going on here, and you're so evil you can't even understand it without flipping it over and mis- uh, misunderstanding it, miscommunicating, and calling what is good evil and what is evil good. And Jesus picks up this co- colorful comparison of, of comparing them to snakes from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 140 verses one through three, where, where the writer says, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's and under their lips is the venom of asps. So vipers were, were poisonous, deadly snakes and they had been a symbol of evil ever since Genesis 3. You know, the the story we know so well of this crafty serpent who came to Eve and deceived her. And because of that, the human race was plunged into sin. And the the snake was this representation or this manifestation of Satan himself. So to call somebody the brood or the the offspring or the children of snakes or vipers is to, to compare them to Satan. It's basically saying, you are Satan's children, that's what John the Baptist is saying here. Welcome, Satan's children. As Jesus says to the Jews in John chapter eight, this is poignant, you are the, of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So right off the bat, John is not making the best first impression with the religious leaders, with the institutional, powerful people. And he places them, and the book of Matthew really places them in a very negative light. So the first impression we have of them when we open up this gospel is is not very good the religious leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees are not the heroes of this story. They are not good people. They're evil. They're dangerous. They're satanic. And because of that, John says, they're destined for judgment. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, where he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And here in Matthew 3, 7, John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, we know that John's message to everyone, everybody that comes out to him is gonna get the same message from John. Remember, he's an equal opportunity prophet. He's an equal opportunity fire and brimstone preacher. He's going to preach repentance in the face of the coming wrath. And basically what he's saying is that the road that you're on is a road of judgment and wrath, and it doesn't look pretty if you keep on it. Repent, turn around, turn back to God and come to Him. And that is the message He gives to everyone. Now He knows that the religious leaders aren't coming to repent. They're not coming because they want to get baptized. They're not coming because they want to listen to the message that John is preaching. He knows that that's the last thing on their mind. So in a sense, this is tongue-in-cheek sarcasm. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? He knows they're not fleeing from the wrath to come. They're not interested in repentance because they don't believe that they are ever going to be facing wrath. And to think that you're above repentance is always, always a dangerous place to be. So, for the first of three times in this passage, John gives a dire warning that God's wrath is coming. Verse seven, the coming wrath. And wrath is something that we all as sinners are destined for. None of us is off the hook. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Paul writes, "The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men." That puts all of us in the same boat, on the same playing field. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is a very similar thing in Ephesians chapter 5. And we have a tendency to read passages like these and ignore these kinds of warnings in Scripture because wrath and judgment, you know, those just seem too harsh. Those are hard things to talk about in our modern world. So can we talk about things like love and affirmation and acceptance because we really don't want to traumatize anyone with the God who judges sin because we don't want anybody to be scared away from Jesus who came to reveal a God who loves us perfectly, And if Jesus tells us that God loves us, then what in the world are we doing talking about wrath? But I would make a case that when we neglect Jesus as judge, we necessarily reject him as savior. We don't have anything to do with judgment, then what in the world are we being saved from? When we neglect Jesus as judge, we necessarily reject him as savior. Now, If you look at this passage here, this Colossians passage, it's up on the screen. It's interesting to me that Paul's point is that God's wrath is coming on all sins. And we tend to make kind of a big deal about those big, blatant, not really acceptable for church people kind of sins. Like up there, it would be like sexual immorality or impurity. Those, those are things that churchgoers sure never take part in, that they never do, that we, if, if we do, we sure don't talk about them, right? Or we hide them really well. They, these aren't the sins maybe that we struggle with. If we do struggle with them, and, and there's none of us that don't ever struggle with sexual sins, by the way, if you've gone through puberty, okay? In some way, shape, or form, we think of these as the, as the really ungodly, worldly things that those people out there do. People that take on labels like LGBT or something like that. Those are the outside sins. Those are the big sins. We make a big, a big fuss about those, and we like to think that our sins, especially our sexual sins, aren't so bad. Oftentimes because they're easier to hide or they're more socially acceptable. But but note carefully here in this Colossians passage, it's also in the passage in Ephesians, that Paul draws attention to the not so ostentatious, not so out there heart sins that we don't even think twice about because they're so easy to hide, like covetousness. So Ephesians chapter five and Colossians chapter three both equate covetousness with idolatry. And if you turn to the Old Testament, what was was the sin that offended God the most? When when his people turned away from him and worshiped idols. Covetousness is idolatry. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever coveted something? Something? Have you ever wanted something that wasn't yours? Have you ever wanted what somebody else has? Have you ever wanted somebody else's house or someone else's car or someone else's boat or someone else's job? Have you ever wanted someone else's money? Have you ever wanted someone else's wife or husband or family? Have you ever wanted someone else's good looks or reputation? Have you ever wanted. You can fill in the blank and we can. We can all fill in the blank with something and we all have to say yes, we are covetous people and if you answer yes to any of those things, you are an idolater. Welcome to wrath. You and I are all subject to the coming wrath of God. We're no better than those people. Yeah, the ones we're so good at judging and looking down our noses at, and just like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, we are all in need of repentance. All of us. Now, we find John's second judgment metaphor in verses eight through 10, so I'd invite you to look there, Matthew 3, eight through 10. Where he says, bear fruit. Remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees still. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the metaphor here is the metaphor of a fruitless tree and and Jesus himself again picks up this metaphor again in Matthew chapter 12 where he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. It's a picture that, that spiritual life and vitality bears fruit. And, and to look at a, people, a person's life, you can tell if they're bearing fruit of, good, of repentance, of goodness, or, or fruit of right unrighteousness or wickedness. And basic to this metaphor is, is the accusation that these religiously elite people were trusting in the fact that because they were descendants of Abraham, In other words, it's like they were kind of rolling out their family tree and saying, we have Abraham as our father, and I can go all the way back to dad and granddad and great granddad and great great granddad, all the way back to Abraham, and my pedigree is what's going to save me. In other words, we're Jews, we've inherited the promises, we're good to go. In our day, this would be like saying, well, of course I'm going to heaven. I've been going to church since I was a baby. Of course I'm a believer. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm saved. Well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. That is what makes me good in God's eyes. In other words, we might think we're good with God because we, we might go through all the religious motions. Or, or we might have done all the right things that Christians do. Or we might simply say, because I was born into it. I've always been part of this church. I've always believed. But being American makes you a Christian, and going to church gets you into heaven about as much as swimming in the ocean will make you a fish. God can create something out of nothing, He can take rocks and make them into His children. And He can give those with no family or name a spiritual inheritance. So so placing your faith in your spiritual pedigree will only disappoint you. So you you can see here that what these leaders, what these Pharisees and Sadducees are doing is they're trusting in the root of the tree rather than in the fruit of the tree. And it's not the root, but the fruit that John and Jesus both say really matters. And so we get the second dire warning of this passage in verse 10. Where John says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. So you think you're great because the roots of your tree go down and and touch Abraham somewhere, even though you're not bearing any fruit? Guess what? There's an axe, and it's swinging, and it's about to hit the root of the trunk of your tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, we all know that in in trees, roots and fruits are fundamentally inseparable. Good fruits in good soil will usually bear good fruits. The problem, though, is that when we make spiritual presumptions, rather than living in active faith in Jesus, what we end up doing is leaving our roots untended and the soil uncared for, and we become fruitless. And fruitless trees are worthless just to be chopped down and burned to make room for trees that will bear good fruit. Now finally in verses 11 and 12, John begins to talk about Jesus. Finally, we get to hear something about Jesus. He doesn't name him, but here's what he says. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John says five quick things here about Jesus in these verses. The first thing that he notes about Jesus is that Jesus is coming. He who comes after me, Jesus is coming. Remember, John is the forerunner. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. So one thing is inevitable. The Messiah is coming, and he's coming soon. The second thing he says about Jesus is that Jesus is mightier than him. So if you think John is awesome, if you think John is dangerous, if you think John's a wild man, just wait until you get a load of Jesus. And John knows that the one who's coming is mightier than him because he knows that the one coming after him is the Lord himself. And third, he says that Jesus is greater than him. John, he says, I'm not even good enough to bend down on my knees and unstrap his sandals and wash his feet like the lowest common slave would do. I'm not even worthy to be his slave or to touch his feet. He is so much greater than I am. And John knows why he's greater. He is greater than John. Jesus is greater than John because he himself is the Lord God. And fourth, John compares their baptism and says that, I baptize with water, but Jesus will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then finally, he identifies Jesus as the judge. And as we'll see in a moment, God himself is the only true judge of all men. So with these five truths about Jesus in in mind, John then breaks out this third and final metaphor and applies it to the Jewish leaders. And it's the metaphor of chaff. Chaff is the the light husk that covers the head of grain. And when the harvest had been brought in and it had been threshed, which was a process that, that would separate the head of grain from the chaff, following the threshing, winnowers would take these pitchforks, or sometimes they would use shovels, and they would toss the grain into the air, and they would, they would be in a kind of a windy place. As they tossed the grain into the air, the wind would come through. It would grab the light chaff, and it would blow it away, and the heavier grain would then fall to the ground. And so this idea of winnowing had an implicit um, a picture or imagery of separation. And so in the Old Testament, Winnowing was often used as a metaphor for God's own judgment. So the wicked were seen as chaff. And in Psalm chapter 1, you see this same metaphor here where it says, he, that is the, the blessed or the godly man, is like a tree. There's that metaphor. A tree planted by streams of water. It's got good roots. It's got good water, good soil. And it yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. They're so insubstantial, they're so light, they're so ungrounded that the wind just blows them away into judgment. The righteous person, though, is the one whose root is solid and whose whose fruit is timely and full. So, So to liken the Pharisees and the Sadducees to chaff was really to call out in no uncertain terms these Old Testament images of judgment that that God the judge is coming and if you're found to be chaff, he is going to winnow you out and the spirit of God, the wind of God is going to sift his people, the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff and he will gather the chaff, he will gather the dead and rotten trees, the unfruitful trees that he's cut down and he will burn them, verse 12, says, "With unquenchable fire." So what's the first impression that you have of Jesus so far? We haven't even met him. Pretty harsh. It's a judge. He calls for repentance. He's great and he's mighty. You know, we often come to the Gospels expecting to meet gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But right off the bat, before Jesus even shows up on the scene, the first thing we're told about him is that he's the coming judge. And he's not just coming to judge the world, he's coming to judge here his own people. He's come to judge a people who think they are okay, who don't see a need to repent who look back to their spiritual heritage and say, hey, I've got a great spiritual pedigree, I'm okay. He's coming to judge people who trust their roots rather than paying attention to their fruits. But the only way that we, and these people, the only way that we can bear fruit is through repentance. Friends, we must deal with Jesus the judge. But we don't. We don't deal with Jesus the judge based on our pedigree or our parents or our past. The only way that we face him as judge and survive is through his work on our behalf. In Romans chapter five, verse nine, gives it to us clearly where it says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, Jesus, the judge himself, comes and makes us just. He justifies us and he gives us life and he saves us from God's wrath. He is the judge, but he's the one who makes us just. And not only that, I love this picture. He's the judge, he's the justifier, but he's also the root. John chapter 15, verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is. It is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. He is the root that we are to be connected to, to be grounded to, and only through him do we bear fruit. So the call today is, is not to be someone who's cleaned themselves up so well that you're above the need to repent and to turn to Jesus. It's not to, it's not to trust your pedigree or your performance, but it's to come to Jesus in his mercy and grace and trust him to save you from wrath. And also to trust him to bear through you fruit that lasts. Let's pray. Jesus, we do come to you and recognize that you are greater, that you have come and you are coming again, that you are mightier than we are. Lord, that you baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire and that you will come again to judge the living and the dead. And God, I'm so grateful that we can stand here today as believers, and place our faith in you and your mercy and your grace toward us and stand in your righteousness and know on that day that we will not face wrath because, Jesus, you bore your Father's wrath for us. And, Lord, my heart breaks for those who are making their way with a comfortable or easy life based on their pedigree or trusting in their past or whatever it might be and are walking straight into the fires of judgment when all they have to do is repent and turn to you. So, so Jesus, I pray that you would work in the hearts of anyone here, Lord, who is, who is being moved, who is being challenged, who is being convicted to turn to you, and may they turn to you in faith and trust and find a God, a king, who's waiting for op- with open arms to welcome them home. pray this in Jesus' name, amen.